I guess maybe two days ago, three days ago, I was searching around the internet and came across a CNN news article. Now don't get depressed. <laughs> uh, I like to look at all news sources as much as possible. Everyone's different opinion on everything that's going on. Uh, but this news article struck me because I think it made a really clear statement about what's happening with uh, the church and public and popular culture. Uh, the article was actually entitled, Christianity's Future Looks More Like Lady Gaga Than Mike Pence. And there was uh, an article written on a concert that Lady Gaga had just recently done in which she stopped halfway through one of her songs and basically let Mike Pence and Donald Trump have it. <laughs> and in the process of doing so, she accused them of their lack of inclusion of all different types of people and their lack of love and that Jesus would just love everyone just as they are. And everyone in the crowd cheered. <laughs> of course, no one's, no one's going to boo the idea of love. But everyone in the crowd cheered. And so CNN picked up on this idea and was like, wow, I think actually Christianity is changing and it looks more like Lady Gaga than the biblical values or family values that Mike Pence would live. And it's kind of an interesting thing that they would make that statement because I don't know if that's true. <laughs> you all know being beach people and living here by the coast, and I know as someone who lived in Hawaii for a couple decades, that when there's surf in the lineup, you want to be careful about getting in the water. In Hawaii, we have these signs we put in all the sand that says, if in doubt, don't go out. <laughs> and the reason being is that many times when there's waves, there's Water energy pushing water in, then water's got to travel back out, and it makes different currents. And if you're not careful, you're out there swimming in the water and having fun with your friends, enjoying the beautiful sunshine and the warm water, which only happens here for about two months of the year. And as that's happening, you might not even realize that you're caught in a current. And next thing you know, that current is sweeping you out to sea and down the coast, and all of a sudden you look back and you find yourself at a point in danger, and you wonder... How did I get here? Well, it's because you can't see currents clearly. I mean, they'll te you learn after a while to spot currents, but many times you don't know you're in a current. You're in there, you're in the water, you're submerged. Everything seems great. I'm in the water, I'm swimming, the sun is shining. Everything's fine, and next thing you know, everything's not fine. And very quickly, things can go from fine to terrible, and this is where a lot of people a lot of times drown. Because this unseen current that feels like everything's fine, but this unseen current as it moves can capture people. I feel like we're in a place in our cultural moment that the church has been caught in some unseen currents and we're in a place right now going, oh my goodness, we're in a dangerous spot. How do we get out of this right now? There was a gentleman that did a bunch of research to try to find out why people have, number one, left the church, and secondly, why people don't like to go to church anymore. As you know, though, down in this area, we're seeing the growth of a lot of different churches because we still have a bit of cultural Christianity down here, a bit of conservative America exists down here. A lot of the other rest of the nation, that's not the case, and church has been on the decline. So he did a poll of 900,000 people. They hired a company to do this, and out of the 900,000, they whittled it down to 100,000. They whittled that down to about 1,000 people that would meet with them and have a conversation for up to 15 minutes on this idea of, number one, why they might have left church, 
and number two, why they feel like they'll never go to church. So after a thousand people, they sat with these thousand, interviewed them, talked to them, and they finally came to a conclusion. This is what they landed on. People have either left the church or people have decided they won't go to church for one reason. They feel the church and Jesus are intolerant. They feel that we're intolerant. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the word tolerance, tolerance actually is an enduring type of word. When you tolerate something, it takes effort. It takes energy. You're typically tolerating something that doesn't go according to the way you want it to go. And I would venture to say that for a couple thousand years, the church and the world have some respect tolerated each other. The church, as it's grown in itself and more people have come into the church, has learned to tolerate culture going, listen, I understand culture doesn't see everything the way I see it. They haven't had the chance to welcome Jesus into their life. They haven't had a chance to turn from their ways. I get that. Well, we can tolerate that. And the world has looked at the church and go, listen, I don't understand this whole Jesus thing and the things you say like no sex before marriage and these different things that you don't do. I don't get it. But the church and culture have always tolerated each other. But now, culture is saying, no, you're intolerant. Well, why would we be intolerant? We, we're still trying to endure each other. And what ha- culture's done is they've changed the defini- definition of the word tolerance. Because if you're intolerant, it doesn't mean that you're enduring my different point of view. If you're intolerant, it means you don't celebrate who I am. You don't celebrate me with all of my maybe dysfunction. You don't celebrate me maybe with my addiction. You don't celebrate me. You don't look at me just the way I am and cheer for me. And because you don't do that, now I'm calling you intolerant. Now I would say Jesus is very tolerant. (laughs) Because Jesus says to everyone, come just as you are. But (laughs) Jesus doesn't just leave it there. Now, we as a church, we've kind of changed our message. We've kind of said, okay, we know what? They're saying we're intolerant. Let's adjust our message. Let's just focus on the greatest thing about God. And let's just tell everyone that God is love. And it's true, because God is love. He's all love, and you can't do anything to earn it. It's available to you. Everything is there for you. But here's the thing. Once, God ex- once you accept God and he comes into your life... He also loves you so much, he doesn't want to leave you as you are. God doesn't want to just tolerate your current behavior. God wasn't, doesn't just want to tolerate your addiction. God doesn't want to just tolerate your emotional upheavals. God doesn't want to just tolerate your quick tongue. God doesn't want to just tolerate those things about you. No, God wants to transform you. But see, there's some words in there that we have to use that the church doesn't like to talk about sin or maybe an even bigger one repentance (laughs) that actually that when we understand that we've been accepted by God and we step into him and then we choose to acknowledge the sin in our life then God comes with all his love and forgiveness and transforms us if we've repented of those different things God is tolerant He's very enduring of our behaviors. But he doesn't want to just tolerate us. He wants to transform us. 
And so I've been looking at this text, this made new series that we've been in. I've just been praying for all of you. I, I go out and I have a goal to get so many steps a day. And so my goal in doing that is I walk around this block as many times during my day in the office. And I'm doing that praying for all of you. I'm learning more and more of your names and faces, but praying for us as a church that we would be a church that would be so desperate for more of God in our lives. But to do that, we have to acknowledge where we're at in our current life. And to be desperate, we might have to turn and repent from some of the things that we have in our lives. Now Paul's going to hammer this home because Paul's trying to bring the Colossians along to say, hey, you need to be made new. You need to make Jesus center of your life. But to do that, you're going to have to think about some things that you do differently. You're going to have to invite God into your life in a different way. You're going to have to let him change you. You're going to have to acknowledge who you are in some of your sinful behaviors. And in doing so, he won't tolerate you anymore. The promise is he's going to transform you. Please, this is a message that I want to share with you to inspire you not to guilt trip you. That's not the goal here. This is for all of us. This is for myself. I want, I want to be a better person. I want to be a better father. I want to be a better husband. Sometimes when I get frustrated at my wife, my face shows it, like very clearly. Since being in this community, I run into you guys all day long. So anytime I'm in a public place and I start getting frustrated, my wife looks at me and goes, there's probably someone from the church looking at you right now. <laughs> so I've learned, I've learned to do this. <laughs> I really wish you would change that right now. <laughs> I don't want to be that person. I want to change. I want to grow. I want to be able to control my emotions better with my kids. <laughs> I was trying to get my kids in bath time the other night, and for whatever reason, my daughter, when they're running to the bath, decided to grab my son by the back of his sweatshirt and pull him into the corner of the um, door jam and hit him in the back of the head, and he's crying his eyes out. I got very angry at her in that moment. I don't want to be that kind of dad. But if I don't acknowledge my shortcoming and repent of that behavior, I don't welcome Jesus into that part of my life to be made new. So while we might be seen at times as intolerant, the answer is, well, we are. Because we're intolerant of this sin in our lives. <laughs> and I can guarantee that many of you spouses are intolerant of some of the things in your spouse. <laughs> You're not going to celebrate <laughs> some of their bad behavior. <laughs> you want it to change. You want them to become better. And that's the hope of the gospel, that we can be accepted just as we are. But that God's love is so great, he doesn't leave us just as we are. He wants to make us new. So Paul's going to hammer that home in Colossians, starting in chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You can turn your Bibles there. I'll take a moment. Colossians 2, chapter 1, sorry, starting in verse 6. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. Now, this is interesting because Paul's starting out this text immediately telling us how we've accepted God. 
or telling the, the small church of the city of Colossae how they've accepted Jesus. See, he's looking at them and saying, you've accepted Jesus not as your Savior, though he's saved you. You've accepted Jesus not as your comforter, though he's comforted you. You've accepted Jesus not as your rescuer, though he's probably rescued you. <laughs> he says something different. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord. Now, if someone is Lord of your life, they're Lord of all of your life. The Greek word here is kurios. It's used frequently through all the New Testament to refer to Jesus as Lord, as the one that possesses everything within our lives, as the one that controls everything in our lives. Paul immediately is calling them out and saying, listen, yes, Jesus has rescued you. Yes, he saved you. Yes, he's comforting you. But remember, Jesus is meant to be Lord. Lord of your life. When you have someone lording over you, you surrender your rights to that Lord. You surrender your decision-making to that Lord. You surrender your possessions to that Lord. You surrender your finances to that Lord. That Lord rules over everything. And Paul's reminding them, saying, listen, when you accepted Jesus... <laughs> He was meant to be Lord of your life. Have you made him Lord of your life? Have you just called on him when you need to be saved? Have you made him more of a spare tire rather than a steering wheel in your life? <laughs> have you made him more of someone that just comforts you when, when you have a breakup or rescues you when your bills are too high? Is he someone that you just call on in the time of need? Or have you truly accepted him as Lord? Here's a radical thing about Jesus. He'll give us whatever we ask for. In the sense that whatever we ask of him, he'll give us in his life. So if we want to keep coming to him just out of comfort, if we want to just keep coming to him just out of being saved, he's there for us. But what Paul's going to show us is that, if, but if you want to be made new, you've got to let him be Lord of your life. You've you got to relinquish that control of your life and let him take control of your life. Now Paul uses two great analogies here. He talks about putting your roots down into him and building your life upon him, which is fascinating because I think in Paul in some ways referring to who our God is and that we see revealed in scripture that God in the beginning of creation was a gardener. He knew what roots were for. He planted and created the garden. <laughs> and that Jesus, when he walked on earth, he built homes with his hands. He most likely built them with stone. And Paul's playing on that saying, the person you're choosing to be Lord, he can help get your roots deeper and he can help you learn how to build your life on him. But that's what needs to be your foundation and that's where your roots need to go. Some years ago, I was living on the island of Puerto Rico. This is, gosh, a long time ago. The last huge hurricane, not the most, freak, re, re, most recent one, one before that. And a huge hurricane came through, and I was buckled down in the bathroom, which had cement walls. And if you've ever lived through a large hurricane, uh, they will tell you that it's like the sound of 100 Amtrak trains running against your house. That's how loud the wind is. So I'm in there, huddled in there. I'm waiting for it all to pass. It finally passes through the whole day, and that whole night, radio says it's clear to come out. I come out, and I walk outside, and it was crazy. What I saw was buildings that had now, were once white, now were green. Because they literally had been like painted with the leaves of all the trees around them. 
But what was fascinating was the trees were bare, but they were still in the ground. (laughs) Why were those trees still in the ground? Because their roots were deep. If you find yourself that you're swirling at life, like when all of a sudden some emotional uh, life change happens, your emotions rise up and you're spinning out and spiraling out, it might be because you need to put your roots in Christ. Because when your roots are in Christ, when the storms come, you might have some things in your life blown away like leaves off a tree, but you will stay rooted in him. But that happens when we make him Lord. Paul continues on in verse 8. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. That is a powerful statement. (laughs) For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Paul is dealing with, in his cultural moment, similar things that we're dealing with in our cultural moment. There were different worldviews at the time that these early believers, as trying to live as Christians, were being bombarded with. Like, Jesus can be put on the top of your mantle alongside all the other Greek gods too. And Paul's saying, no, you, you can't do that. Those are empty philosophies. You can't believe in all these other things and then still say Jesus is Lord. He's either Lord of your life or he's not at all. You can't put him next to everything else. Now, philosophy is a great term. I'm not against philosophy at all. Philo being love, Sophia being wisdom, the love for wisdom. Some would say Greeks at this time that Paul's writing came up with the ideas in philosophy. I would beg to differ because we have older books in our Old Testament that I think deal with philosophy as well, love of wisdom. For instance, the book of Job, oldest book, maybe one of the oldest books in ancient literature that's been written, it's the philosophy of suffering. (laughs) Song of Solomon is the philosophy of love and marriage. Ecclesiastes, though kind of depressing at times, is the philosophy of life to a degree that there is an understanding of philosophy, love with wisdom, conversating, sharing the pieces of wisdom. But what Paul's saying, that if it doesn't still make Jesus Lord, then it's empty. It's like a placebo. You know what a placebo is? There's one that's going around right now called essential oils. (laughs) Oh, someone's going to be mad at me for this one. I'm telling you right now. You know what? I'm all about it. I get sick. I'll rub any oil you got on my face. You name it, I'll rub it. I'm, I'm there for it. Like, I'll rub it. But I'll be honest. Sometimes I think it's a placebo. I had a friend. He had staph infection in his foot. His, his wife said, rub this thing down with essential oils. He did. He ended up in the hospital. He almost died. I'm just saying. It's not that it's bad in a sense, but it's, is it the proven thing that's going to work? Okay, okay, okay. Essential oils will work. Okay, okay, okay. (laughs) But he's saying, don't give yourself to that. Jesus is your Lord. Put your roots in him. Build your life on him. Turn from your ways. Acknowledge the sin in your life. And he will make you new. It won't come through anything else. Jesus is not here to be your life coach. He's here to be your Lord. (laughs) And if you're not making Jesus Lord of your life, yes, you're going to be let down. You're going to feel like this faith thing isn't working because you're still Lord of your life. You haven't made him Lord of your life. 
Yes, he's here to save you. Yes, he's here to comfort you. Yes, he's here to rescue you. But everything changes when we choose to make him our Lord. Continuing in verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not only by a physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, the cutting away of your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. And with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Now Paul's talking about circumcision here because at that time in their cultural moment, the Jewish party, a group called the Judaizers, were coming against this new group of people called the Way, this new ecclesia, this gathering of these Messiah people. And they were telling them, listen, Paul's come and told you that you can make Jesus Lord of your life just by choosing to do so, but that's not the case. Because Jesus, if he was the Messiah, he's our Lord, he's the Jewish Lord, you have to sign up for the Jewish way of doing things. How do I do that? You have to observe our laws. And at the very least, bros, we got a sharp knife in the back. It's time to get circumcised. And they're all like, no. And the Jews are all like, yes. And Paul's saying it's not about those things anymore. In fact, the idea of being circumcised takes goes all the way back to Abraham at the beginning of his step of faith. And his circumcision was an outward sign of the inward decision to say, God, you are now Lord of my life. It had never had anything to do with the physical flesh, of changing that flesh. It had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do, had something to do with that, but it had everything to do with the changing of the inward man, the changing of what went on inside of Abraham. The bigger thing was him choosing to say that now Yahweh was going to be Lord of my life. And Paul's saying it's Yahweh that now, when he is made Lord, starts cutting away the sin in your life. Cutting those aspects away. Making you new. Not tolerating you any longer, but transforming you. Because you were buried with him. And now you have been raised with him. And as you, I love the word he uses, trusts in that power. That's the change that happens within you. Verse 13 You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. They tried to shame Jesus. They hung him, nude on a cross, whipped and battered, broken, stabbed in the side, crying out to his God, feeling alone, looking defeated, that everything they had communicated had now stopped. The Romans celebrated that we had stopped this this rebel kingdom from rising up, this revolution that this man, this this poor man from a little podunk town of Nazareth had started. They thought they had publicly shamed him. But something happened three days later. He shamed everyone. 
Not in the sense of looking at them and their sin. No, he shamed the powers at work behind everything. He said, Satan, you're not holding me down. He said, Satan, you're not holding anyone down. Because I'm coming back. I'm stepping out from behind the stone. I'm not sitting in a grave where people can make a pilgrimage and worship me. I'm not sitting in a temple where people come and pay homage to me. I'm stepping out of the ground. I'm alive. And I'm making everyone alive with me. Free from their shame now. What? Yeah, free from their shame now. Why did Christ make us free from our shame? I think Christ made us free from our shame because when we're free from our shame, it's very easy easy to repent. (laughs) Because when we say, you know what, there's no shame. (laughs) There's no more shame. Christ took all that shame publicly on the cross. He rose from the dead and he beat the powers of evil. He made a way that I can speak out the sickness in my life free of shame. That I can truly acknowledge the brokenness in my life, free of shame. He didn't make us free of shame so we could stay in our sin. He didn't make us free of shame so we could celebrate our sin. He made us free of shame so we could beat the power of sin over our life. Are we going to struggle with sin in our life? Yeah. Will that continue probably to the day we go home with the Lord? Of course. But is there hope that every day We can see more of our sinful flesh cut away from us? Yes. Is there hope that every day that God won't tolerate us, he'll transform us? Yes. Is there hope that every day I have a new chance at being a better father to my kid? Yes. Is there hope that every day I have the chance at being a better husband to my wife? Yes. Is there hope that every day I can be a better coworker, friend, contributor to society? Yes. Every day I can wake up knowing that God's tolerated me and said, you are welcome here, but that he loves me so much that when I acknowledge the sin in my life, he doesn't tolerate that sin, he transforms me. And he begins to make me new. When we walk in that, and we root ourselves in him, and we build our lives on him, and we acknowledge him as Lord, He makes us new.